0: Begin. Let's pray. Father, we are are thankful for you gathering us here this morning um, on your day, and we do do ask that we give you the 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 first fruits of our energy and our time this week. That we would be focused focused upon your word, focused upon. Um, meaningful fellowship with your people in the coming moments and hours. We pray for our upcoming service, that um, we pray for the preaching, the the singing, the praying, that it would all be pleasing to you, a pleasing aroma to you um, from your people, and that it would grow us, that it would edify us, um, it would encourage us, um, and it would grow us like into Christ's image. And as we think about the the book of Acts this morning in our Sunday school, we think about the person and the work of Christ in the book of Acts, pray that you would um, center our hearts on the amazing truth that is your gospel and of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. His full work that, that enacts the plan of, of your salvation for your people and how we see it so clearly played out in Acts. We're so thankful for that and pray that it would, you'd give us eyes to see it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to continue in our study through the book, The Mission of the Triune God which is written by Patrick Schreiner It's a study or a theology of the book of Acts. And today the goal is to hopefully get through chapter two of the book, which is entitled Christ lives and rules. Christ lives in rules. And so obviously today the lesson is going to be focused on the role of Christ or or the son of God and, and the role he plays in the book of Acts. And what we'll see in Acts is largely what theologians have called the work of Christ. And if you remember to, to last week, we saw how for Luke, who's, who's the author of Acts, for Luke, that the central or central to his understanding of constructing a well-ordered narrative, uh, a well-ordered account of, of the history of the New Testament church, the, the ascension of Christ into heaven, the sending of the Spirit, central to that story was God the Father. Right? God the Father and his orchestration and planning of all things that take place, including all things that occur in the book of acts. So in that sense, we said acts is fundamentally about the, the father's plan and his orchestrating of that plan in history. And so if you remember the last week, we said that the, the logical first theme that all other themes and acts flow out from is that theme of God the Father's planning. But what we see is that the Father's plan coheres, or you could say it climaxes in God the Son, who is Jesus Christ, the God-man. Because in Acts, it is that it, it's the Son of God who, who lives, who rules, who, who directs in the narrative. And we see this at the very beginning of the book of Acts, if, you, if your Bibles, you, we're going to be all over the place in Acts, like usual. Um, but in Acts 1, the very first two verses, Acts 1, verses 1 through 2, this is the introduction to the narrative of this book of Acts. These verses function to, to set up the rest of Acts, obviously, and what we see is Luke's main focus is on Jesus. We read in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So from the, these verses we can conclude it, that though Acts is titled the, the Acts of the Apostles, Schreiner makes the point, it could more aptly or correctly be called the continued works or acts of the risen and enthroned Jesus. Luke tells Theophilus about what Jesus began to do and teach. And that word began in verse one implies that there was an initial action or teaching, but that it was, not, it was not complete. It was not fully established. Jesus hasn't finished all he has to do and teach by the end of the Gospel of Luke, which is the first book Luke is referencing here. Therefore, we see that, that Acts is a continuation of the works and teachings of Jesus Christ. And we see that his, his life and rule over his people is ongoing, even though he, he is physically absent from the story. And that is really, I think, probably the crucial big theme that we see in Acts that's crucial to our understanding of it. And that is that in, in Acts we see in our counting in chapter 1 of Acts verses 9 and 11 of Jesus's ascension into heaven. It's also what is known as the, the exaltation of Christ. That's what Shriner typically uses to refer to, to this event coupled with the resurrection. And here comes the, the big point that's so crucial for us to grasp in our understanding of, of Acts. That though Jesus Christ is physically absent in Acts, he's, he's ascended into heaven, he is still very much ruling, he's still very much active in the narrative. Jesus is still reigning as king, he's reigning over the entire world and over his people in Acts, even though, and really especially as he is seated now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Schreiner points out how the ascension narrative, that text right there in Acts 1 verses 9 through 11, functions as a hinge between the two narratives of Luke and Acts, which remember we're, we're taking as one text given to us by the same author. Both of them, the, or the ascension as well as the resurrection that was chronicled at the end of Luke, both of them prove to the reader that Jesus is the Messiah and he is Lord. Christ's ascension or or his exaltation then functions in the narrative as an affirmation or, or evidence for us of his rule, of his rule over everything and everyone. And you can see this in subtle ways just by, it's why Jesus is called Lord by the apostles a lot more in the book of Acts than in Luke. He's now reigning in heaven and ruling through his people in Acts, and so therefore it's extremely inappropriate to say that Jesus is absent in Acts, which is a claim by some scholars, shockingly enough, that Jesus is absent in Acts because he's not physically present in the story, because he's now in a different location. Now he's clearly ruling from his throne in heaven. And to think in the categories we gained last week or or the past two weeks of, of the Father's plan If the Father's plan in Acts is to to plant his word by the Spirit to to expand his kingdom to all nations through his word and spread, then then that word in Acts centers on the living and exalting king of that kingdom, of the kingdom that is expanding. And the king is Jesus, and a focus is on his work. Jesus' work that enacts salvation for anyone to ever enter the kingdom. So this is, how, this is how Jesus plays such a key role in our understanding of what God's plan is. Schreiner says we can also see the this, this same message of Jesus reigning as king and, and lord over his people in the structure of the narrative. It's particular the structure of the beginning of Acts. So Acts chapter 1 and 2 as, as a whole, one and two. Luke lays out what Schreiner calls Luke's theological synopsis of the book. Luke's theological synopsis of the book. And then Peter, he gives a sermon in Acts two, starting in 2.14, verse 14. And it interprets kind of that theological synopsis of Acts one and two It it interprets that theological foundation laid in Acts 1 and 2 and what we see then is that the plan of God was to send the Holy Spirit to send the Spirit yet we see the Spirit's arrival was was predicated on the death the resurrection and the the exaltation of Jesus we could just say more simply the work of Christ so notice here this is this way of reading Acts is helpful with what we call our, our Trinitarian grammar or how we speak properly about the Trinity or the mission of the triune God. Again, title of the book, the son, right? He, he proceeds the spirit in the mission and the spirit proceeds from the father and the son, and this is very important language that springs forth from the biblical text itself. This is what we see as we see the mission of God play out in history, the plan of salvation play out. But this language is also used by the church historically to to characterize the difference or the distinctions between the persons of the Trinity as we confess our belief in the Trinity. So in Acts we see the Spirit, God the Spirit, proceed from God the Father and the Son, which is a, a really important distinction that that is made and again this chapter is going to be primarily focused on Jesus next week we're going to be talking about the spirit so we'll get into that more but this chapter is primarily focused on Jesus and his ascension into heaven and how he is declared Lord and, and Christ through this victory and how that is this this victory of Jesus how that is a part of God's eternal plan. And China boils this down to Jesus's life and rule. Jesus's life and rule as being the, the central themes that we see in Acts. He lays this out in, in three sections in the chapter that, that deal with Jesus's life and rule. First, and these also coincide with the work of Christ, if you're thinking about it more in theological category. So first, the, the resurrection in Acts. Then we move to his ascension, his exaltation, which deals specifically right with his rule and reign as, or his lordship. And finally, Schreiner looks at the use and function of the cross, or or the death of Christ in Acts. So, big picture, we're going to see how the work of Christ is the means the the means of fulfilling the eternal plan of God to save a people for Himself. Says so is God's plan of salvation being enacted in history through the work of His Son, God the Son, Jesus. And this is the story that we see in Acts, which is, actually, which is wonderful. But I'll stop. Any questions, comments, concerns? Okay, let's first think then about the resurrection. The resurrection and the role it plays in the book of Acts. And so I've already stated this like a hundred times. I'm going to say it again. Uh, It's clear when reading Acts, we can see that the father has a plan and that plan is to give life. That plan is to give eternal life to the world through Jesus. So a shorthand for this that I'm going to be using is his plan of salvation. God's plan of salvation to bring eternal life to a people. And though Jesus' resurrection isn't recounted in Acts, we do see the resurrection play a central role in the fulfillment and inaction of the plan of salvation. Schreiner argues that we can even say that the the resurrection is the heart of the message of both Luke and Acts, of Luke-Acts. And we see that in two types of texts in the narrative, two types of texts that we see in the narrative that Luke uses. So first, we see a lot of resurrection speeches, or you could call them resurrection sermons, given by the, the characters in the story, namely the, the apostles, where these, they're, they're proclaiming the truth and the, the truth of God's Word. And these speeches, these sermons, are central, are focused on the resurrection of Christ. And then coupled with these texts, we also see a lot of texts and acts of what Schreiner calls resurrection signs are the miraculous events in Acts that attest to the resurrection of our Lord. So we see these resurrection speeches and these resurrection signs all throughout interwoven in the narrative of Acts by Luke to show, here's the big idea, It's showing to us, it's showing to the reader how central the resurrection is in God's plan of salvation. So, let's first just look at the resurrection speeches. What we see in Acts is that Jesus' disciples, His messengers, they go about preaching about the new life found in the gospel and the gospel message. And we see this from the two main preachers in the book, Peter and Paul. Paul. Peter and Paul, and central to their preaching and their teaching, ministry, it, it's, that's chronicled for us in the narrative, central to that preaching and teaching ministry is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So we have three speeches, three sermons from uh, Peter and Acts. The first we see, we just mentioned it, in Acts 2, verses 14 through 36, We see one in Acts 3, verses 11 through 26. There might be one in Acts 4. Some debate about that, but we'll talk about that in a second. And then there's definitely one in Acts 10. Acts 10, verses 34 through 43. So we see in Peter's first speech, in chapter 2, this theme of resurrection. Luke allocates 11 verses verses 22 through 32 of chapter 2, to the necessity of Jesus' resurrection and how the, the falling of the Spirit on believers, the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, is rooted in or, or built upon the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So uh, there's, there's really no doubt that the resurrection is central in Peter's thinking and, and Peter's proclamation and his sermon. Peter's second speech, the one in chapter three, there's less explicit reference to the resurrection, but it's still present. We see the opening and the last line of the speech contain the the theme of resurrection, which functions as bookends to the speech, the the introduction and conclusion. Verse 13 of chapter three says that God glorified his servant Jesus, this is referring to, to his resurrection, And then in verse 26, Peter ends the speech saying that God raised up his servant from the dead. And the point of this speech is is Peter is speaking to the Jews and calls them to repent, calls them to repent for their, their rejection of Jesus as Messiah. He's saying repent because of your rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, as the anointed one. And they killed the Holy and Righteous One, as verse 14 states. But God reversed this action. They reversed this great injustice of the Jews killing Jesus by raising him from the dead through the resurrection. Thus, Peter would say Jesus is the author of life because of his defeat of death. So see how the the resurrection is central to his understanding of the new life, the eternal life that he's offering and the gospel proclamation. There's another resurrection moment with Peter, sometimes characterized as another speech or sermon. It's found in chapter 4, so next page over, where Peter's before the council of elders and scribes of Jerusalem. And Peter uses the deed of healing a lame man in verse 9 to springboard to Jesus' resurrection in verse 10, saying it is through Jesus' death and resurrection that the lame man is alive thus connecting the the miracle power of the apostles to the resurrection of Christ, which we're going to talk a lot more about that in a moment of the the miraculous signs pointing to the resurrection. The final major speech from Peter is to Cornelius. Cornelius, I've always liked the name Cornelius. Can't name my child Cornelius, but it is a good name. He's a, a Gentile in chapter 10. We see this speech in verses 34 through 48. Peter again cites the resurrection in verse 40 as the ground or or the reason that Jesus is Lord of all. That Jesus is Lord of all of both Jew and Gentile. And that He's the only judge of the living and the dead. Thus the resurrection serves a prominent role again in this speech. As the ground, as the reason for the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God, through the new life they've received through the Spirit and the Word that comes only through the resurrection of Christ. You see how all of this, all of these, are are logically connected in a a system. Paul's speeches. So we're moving from Peter to Paul. Paul's speeches also center on the resurrection and the life that comes through Jesus. Due to time, I'm not going to go into to all the details and examples Schreiner gives. You can find those on the book, if you have the book, which I encourage you to get the book. It's still time. Um, he goes into a lot of evidence of this on pages 47 and 48 of the book. But in summary, what we see in both Peter and Paul and their speeches, their sermons that are th- throughout the narrative, we see the same theme, show up of of resurrection and the necessity of the resurrection for new life, for eternal life. And we see the same theme show up in Stephen's speech, right? Stephen's speech before he stoned in Acts 7. But what we see in these these resurrection speeches is the, the theme of new life and what that resurrection has won for those who embrace by faith Jesus as Lord. This is the message proclaimed by the Gospels. I mean, by the apostles, in the Book of Acts, and it's what Schreiner calls the consistent thread concerning the, the role of God the Son, being the central part of God's plan of salvation. This is the mission of God the Son, in um, God's plan of salvation. And we see the the revolutionary nature, or we could say just how how everything has fundamentally changed because of the resurrection. History has changed. Everything really has changed based on Jesus' resurrection, his defeat of death. And we can see that not just in the speeches given in Acts, but also in the many resurrection signs. So we're going to move now to the resurrection signs. And we see these signs in various narratives dispersed in Acts. As people are miraculously healed, they're they're rescued, and it, and, it, and it happens frequently. It's really all over the place in the book. And these signs, this is what's important. We're we're going through the Gospel of John, so y'all we should know this really well. The signs, the miracles, they not they don't just happen for no reason. They're intentionally placed. They're they're intentionally used by God to attest to something to be a signpost, that's why they're called signs, to be a sign for us. And what these signs show us is that the, the resurrection is not only preached, it's not only proclaimed in Acts, but it's also enacted through the ministry of Jesus' witnesses. It's the, the, the resurrection is enacted physically by the apostles. So first we see Peter and John go into the temple Going back to Acts 3, I told you it would be all over the place. So back to Acts 3, Peter and John go into the temple. They, they see the lame temple baker, beggar, not baker. He might be a baker. He's probably not. Okay, he's a beggar. And in verse 7, it says, He took him by the right hand and, and raised him up. He took him by the hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. That term, raised him up, very important. It's the most commonly used for resurrection. So though this man did not rise from the dead, the miracle, the sign that Peter and John performed, was clearly pointing to the resurrection, to the language Luke used of raising up. He's using the same word. He raised up the lame man to, to walk. And Peter's sermon, as we just saw, attests to this interpretation. As Peter proclaims, it's only through Christ's resurrection that the miracle could occur. It's only through his death and resurrection that that the man could walk. There's also what Schreiner calls, I find these really fascinating, mere passages and acts of Jesus's death and resurrection in the life of his apostles. So think of this not as resurrections per se, or not as healings or even miracles, but narrative ties. So uh, similar patterns in the story that should connect the reader to the narrative account of Jesus's resurrection. <coughs> So, kind of clues for us as readers that, that Luke is using to, to show how this event that occurred in the apostles' life is a mirror or a yeah, a mirror of what we see in Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, I find these to be fascinating. Also, more proof that Luke is brilliant, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit. But this document that we have, Luke, Acts, is a brilliantly constructed document. Um, and what he's doing in the narrative. So we can see one of these points of connection, probably the, the most obvious and prominent one is in Stephen's speech in martyrdom in Acts 7. And so in his speech in chapter 7, before he gets stoned, there, there's a lot of parallels to Jesus' death and resurrection. Though Luke doesn't record any kind of resurrection of Stephen, I think we can say that Luke is anticipating his resurrection with the details he provides and the narrative that connect to, to the Luke account of Jesus' resurrection. So Schreiner trying to list these connections, which I find very helpful. Both Jesus and Stephen are brought before their own leaders. False witnesses rise up against both of them. Priests question both of them. Both of them clearly speak of the Son of Man right? Their testimony, both of their testimony incites violence against them. They both commit their spirits to God upon their death. They both forgive those that are killing them. That's a really big key connection. And Jesus rises from the dead after his death. And Stephen, miraculously, he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And I think that the clear anticipation of his own resurrection. It's a really remarkable account in Acts that we could see, we could call it a resurrection sign or a mirror intentionally placed by Luke to bring to our minds the importance of the resurrection in the story. Another one of these signs is when Peter heals and causes Ananias, who was paralyzed, or Ananias, who is paralyzed to rise. writes that same word we saw in chapter 3. This is in chapter 9, verse 34. Same word, to, to resurrect. We see the same thing with the actual resurrection from the dead of Tabitha, and a few verses over in verse 40 of chapter 9. Peter raises her from the dead, again showing us as signs how the resurrection has brought new life. Literally bring, being brought from death to life. And, th- and this is really key, these resurrection signs are physical representations of what occurs spiritually to all those who are saved and born again through the Spirit of God. Right? These are attestations of what is occurring now that the Spirit of God is being sent to God's people. He's, he's breathing in, giving new life to those who put their trust in Jesus. And so this is what these, these physical signs of, of literal resurrection from the dead are pictures of the spiritual rebirth found in the gospel. Now, when we get to Paul, we see this the same theme continue. He raises a lame man in Acts 14, and then he quickly gets stoned. <laughs> and then some of my favorite verses in Acts, uh in verse, four, or verse 19 of chapter 14, we read, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. That's not funny. It's not why I'm laughing. They dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. I just love that verse because how nonchalant it is. He just got up after they thought he was, they just stoned him near to death, and he just got up and walked into the city. That's, it, it points to, to Paul having a, a, a resurrection of sorts, as being left for dead, but ultimately being totally fine, being, just being fine enough to walk into the city. I think it's implying a, a healing has taken place. Another resurrection story that I also find funny, which is weird, um, I think this one is actually supposed to have a tinge of humor, but it's in Acts 20 with the story of Eutychus. You know this story? the raising of Eutychus. This is the guy that was sitting at the window while Paul was preaching to them. And Luke says, Paul prolonged until midnight. So he's preaching a really long time. He kept going. He kept teaching. He kept teaching. And Eutychus falls into a deep sleep. Paul kept preaching and preaching and preaching. And he falls out the window and drops dead at three stories. Splat. There goes Eutychus. I can laugh because he resurrects him. But... The story is often used in seminary for young preachers to encourage us that even Paul must have been boring in his preaching. Um, I don't know if that's actually true. It's also the title of one of my favorite preaching and teaching books. It's called Saving Eutychus. It's like tips of how not to be boring in public teaching and preaching. Very clever title, but also implies Paul was boring. Um, Okay, where am I? Uh, He... So Eutychus, he falls uh, into a deep sleep in the narrative. It's probably a metaphor that we see often in Scripture for, for death. He falls into the darkness of night, into darkness. Outside of the house, he's dead. And Paul goes down, he raises him from the dead, and th- there's a happy ending. But again, it's another narrative, Luke includes, that is a sign of resurrection and the new life found in the resurrection in the Gospel. The point of all this, all this evidence that Shriner's giving us is to show how the Father's plan and Acts is to f- spread this new life through the Spirit found only in the resurrection of the Son. So the apostles not only witness and proclaim about the resurrection, but they also perform resurrection. They also perform these signs. Also the way we saw with Luke's, I mean, uh, Stephen's speech In Acts 7, the way the narrative is sometimes structured to mirror um, Jesus' death and the, the death of some of his apostles again shows more evidence that the resurrection is on the front of Luke's mind when he's writing Acts. Shriner writes to conclude this section, any reading of Acts that neglects the resurrection neglects the heart of the message offered to all. And I'll just pause here. Any questions, comments? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I might put Blake on the spot here. He's shaking his head no. <laughs> um, I, I think what we see, right, most fully in Acts and the New Testament is the fulfillment of those types in Christ. And so the work of Christ is the fulfillment of those types, which we're going to get to in a second, kind of like the offices of um, prophet, priest, and king. We see that fulfilled in Christ's work, which we see in completed kind of in the Acts to the exaltation. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out what are these things then? If is, there a, is there a word that describes what they are? I don't know. I'm thinking like good writing. <laughs> <laughs> like really masterful skill and which we should expect, right? The Holy Spirit's inspiring the um, these connections. But I, I'm, I'm kind of pondering on Mr. Mr. Blake, Pastor Blake. I'm just wondering about the difference. between It seems like we're, we're, we're getting at the difference. That is not the definition of type. That's true, yeah. In there, so so an es- a type, there's an escalation to a fulfillment of the office institution or event that the, the type is pointing towards. Usually, type out... And again, I think if we're, we should be expecting to see the fulfillment of all the types that we see, everything y'all are saying about the Old Testament patterns, institutions, people. We find in all of our fulfillments of types in Christ, the person, ministry, the work of Christ. Um, so we could be seeing some of that too, which might be, I could be more careful in my language too. Yeah, and just being the, where they're being written in salvation history on that timeline. Yeah, that's very helpful. All right, I'm going to move us on to the, the ascension, um, exaltation in the book of Acts. And Shriner's big argument here is that the ascension of Christ into heaven needs to be included in a the theology of Acts because it communicates us, goodness, it communicates to us a lot about Jesus being Lord and the Lordship of Christ generally, which is massively important for God's people, the church. In fact, he's Lord based on his exaltation by his ascension. We're going to be talking about a fulfillment of a type right now, a fulfillment of what we see in Daniel 7. Daniel 7 verses 13 through 14. Everything is under the son of man's feet. That's referring to Christ. That's referring to this ascended Christ sitting at the right hand of the father. As Daniel says, all nations, peoples, languages must serve him, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. So direct quote from, from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. That is Jesus the king. And it's describing his lordship, his lordship over everything. So you can see then how the ascension is not just some afterthought of the resurrection or Jesus just floating away into heaven on a cloud. It's very important to the the theological event or to to contemplate the theological event and the scope of the scriptures and and the narrative of the whole canon. And Charter makes the point that it's important we don't ultimately conflate the resurrection and the ascension, although they're they're really closely related. But they're two separate events included in the work of Christ. Murray Harris, Schreiner quotes him, he has a helpful quote that explains the difference between the resurrection and the ascension. Harris writes, the resurrection proclaims he lives, the exaltation proclaims he reigns. It's very... Simple, but, but really helpful. And it's a subtle distinction, but an important one in our understanding of Acts, because what we see is that the ascension of Christ does not mark the end of the, the work of Christ on earth, or, or of his work on earth, but the continuation and, and exaltation of his messianic role in the plan of salvation as it's played out in history, as, it, as it's played out on earth. And we see this. With, with the ongoing reign of the living enthroned Jesus in heaven. And therefore, the, the ascension plays a very central role in a theology of Acts. And we see this in a few ways, or implications of the ascension in Acts. And the first way Trina points out is in the geography of Acts, right? Remember, we've talked quite a bit about how geography plays a big part in Acts, how it's structured. Um, It's structured based on the spread of the gospel into Judea, Samaria, and then to all, to the ends of the earth. Um, And that spread of the gospel has a root or a foundation. It's coming from a specific location, which is Jesus reigning in heaven, who's the direct, who, who directs the affairs of all things. He directs the affairs of his church. He directs the affairs of the spread of his kingdom. So in that sense, we can say that heaven, where Christ is presently, is where all reality is ruled and judged. Salvation proceeds from this throne and in time and space. It proceeds from that throne into actual history. But that salvation and the spread of the gospel has its roots in Christ ruling in heaven. So the the essential, um, the, the ascension is critical to our understanding of of the spread of the gospel, the spread of the kingdom of God, which is what we talked about quite a bit last week. Second, the ascension enthrones Jesus as one with supreme authority over everything. The ascension, the exaltation of Christ, enthrones Jesus as the one with supreme authority over everything. Third implication of the Ascension in Acts is that much of the theology of Acts stems from Christ's exalted status. We can see this with something as simple with, the, again, what we just talked about, the references, the number, the larger number of references of, of referring to Jesus as Lord. The sending of the Spirit is tied or stems from the Ascension, as Peter makes clear in, in the Pentecost sermon in Acts 2.33. Acts 2, he writes being therefore exalted, I think that's directly referring to the ascension, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So you notice that connection, the pouring out of the Spirit, connected, proceeds from from the, the exaltation of Christ, His ascension into heaven. So, Hope you can see briefly how the, the ascension of Christ plays a central role in a, to a theology of, of Acts. And without it, without the ascension of Christ in the story, Christ's work in Acts, Christ's work in the scriptures is actually incomplete. Shriner writes, Without the ascension, our good news is truncated. Without the ascension, our good news is truncated. Without it, Christ is not declared Lord and Messiah. The Son of God did not come down to earth to stay. He came down in order that he might ascend and one day might descend again. Now, Jesus' ascension is closely related to his continued ministry in Acts or his working in history. Scharner points out how we often think of what Jesus has done in his life, ministry, and death. And we think of what he's going to do quite a bit in his final return, but we don't often think of what he's presently doing, what he's currently doing. And that is what we see kind of the initial glimpse of in the book of Acts. He's still doing those same things as we speak right now, in this age as we await his return. So it's not like he's not Lord of all as we speak. He's currently reigning. He's currently ruling from his throne. But we see Jesus continued work in Acts by, by several different avenues. The first, most obvious way is when he shows up in the narrative, when he, he appears to people. So he, we, we just saw it with Stephen in Acts 7. Cornelius Acts in Acts 10, Peter and Paul on multiple occasions. But we also see Jesus continued work in Acts by him continuing in his role of the offices that we see throughout Scripture of prophet, priest, and king. three very important offices that that we see from the very beginnings of Scripture that are uh, developed along these types, which we were just talking about with Rob, these types of the different prophets, priests, and kings that are all pointing towards the true prophet, the true priest, and the true king, who is Jesus. but they're present also in Acts as he is reigning. And we see it through his rule of his people, the church. Jesus was a prophet on earth. He proclaimed God's word. He he is the word of God. He performed signs to attest to his word. He was empowered by the spirit. And these actions didn't cease upon his ascent. His prophetic work continues by the spirit whom he pours out on his people. The church then now proclaims Jesus as his prophetic mouthpiece, proclaiming the truth of God's word through the authoritative power of the Spirit. So I think we can see pretty clearly the connection then between uh, how the the work of Christ as prophet continues through the proclamation of the truth of God's word in Acts and then continuing through the history of the church with the canonization of the scriptures. Schreiner also has a much larger section defending how, how Jesus is still active in his priestly office in Acts. Um, it's very persuasive, um, but I'll just summarize. We, we see Christ interceding on behalf of his people now that he's enthroned. We see this also in other New Testament letters quite, quite clearly, thinking of like the book of Hebrews. Um, he's interceding on behalf of his people, who, who in Acts were going under tremendous trials and persecution. And then Christ's priestly role is, we could say, even enhanced as he reigns in the heavens, interceding on behalf of his people. He's now, he's now pleading for his people at the right hand of his Father. Jesus is now a, a, our great high priest who, who prays for us, he, he intercedes on our behalf. He, he's, he is the true priest that we see all over that pattern, we see all over in the scriptures. Finally, and probably most obviously in the narrative of Acts, is that Christ's ascension marks a turn in Jesus's kingly office. In Jesus's kingship, you could say it's, it's kind of fully realized when he finally ascends to the right hand of the Father taking his place on his throne. We see him ruling from heaven. He directs the affairs of the world from his exalted position. And this is tied closely to something we see in Acts as the church then being awaiting people. We we are now awaiting the return of our king and the consummation of his rule upon the earth. So we have this tension in Acts of Christ's lordship, of Christ's rule, and His lordship and rule over everything doesn't mean that the church is to go out and, and is called to rule the world. So there's this tension of Jesus' lordship, His kingship over everything, and the church being awaiting people, not a conquering people. It's a really important theme that we see throughout the book of Acts. right The conquering, the consummation will happen upon Christ's return to the earth. In fact, we know, we see this clearly in Acts, we see it in the rest of the New Testament, the church will actually face hardship. The church will face persecution, will face suffering, harsh, difficult conditions on earth, even as Christ is presently seated at the right hand of the Father, even even as He is King, Lord of the universe. So that's a clear tension that we see in the narrative of Acts. But his kingly reign is in the heaven. It's, it's We could think of it as, as being hidden in a sense until the final day when he comes back in, in full power to judge the living and the dead. Finally. But notice here, this is key for, for this, this whole section. The ascension of Christ is critical to a proper reading of Acts because just like we saw the The resurrection proclaimed the life of Jesus continues. The ascension declares the the rule of Jesus is forever, his his reign is eternal. So, the ascension plays a central role in our understanding of Jesus and, and how he directs his people, how he directs the affairs of the church. So, it's a key event and theme in the plan of salvation. Just so want to move on finally to the, the death of Christ, the death of Christ in Acts, I'll pause. Any questions, comments, concerns? We're good. Okay. The death of Christ. Um, the first thing to say is that there's, there's quite a bit of debate. I read some this week. It's just kind of baffling to me, so I might get a little upset here. Um, but there's there's some scholars of Acts have denied there's an emphasis on the cross of Jesus in Acts um, or Jesus' death, right? On the face of it, it's not the most outrageous idea because the emphasis of Acts is clearly on the resurrection and exaltation of Christ, which we've been talking about. But the claim these scholars, what they're typically doing, it's done by scholars who are arguing against the doctrine of atonement or the, against the doctrine of penal substitution, of the doctrine of sacrificial atonement, or you could just say justification. Because they say the apostles didn't talk about it in Acts, so it must not be that important. And it, it is pretty much garbage. That's a very bad take, terrible argument. Um, because the death of Christ, by that I mean the cross, the atonement, the the sacrificial aspects of Christ's work is very present in Acts. The death of Christ is important in Acts even if it doesn't show up as much in the language of of Luke. In fact, it's a very good reminder just to think about this generally. It's a good reminder that all of the work of Christ, His death, His resurrection, His exaltation, must be taken as a package, taken in unison, as one system. Schreiner says that the cross, resurrection, ascension are all one single script in the minds of the New Testament authors. You can't talk about one without presupposing the other. So in that sense, anytime Luke talks about the resurrection or exaltation, exaltation he has in mind the death of Christ, which just makes sense logically. I just don't get how these scholars write things. <laughs> There would be no resurrection. There would be no resurrection if he did not die. And we see in Acts that that the resurrection and ascension confirm and validate the victory. It validates the atonement that was won on the cross. So again, without the cross, neither the resurrection nor ascension happens. And conversely, without the resurrection and ascension, the cross loses all significance. It loses any saving power. They're all connected. They're all part of one system. All of the work of Christ and salvation must be taken together. So an emphasis, this is where, okay, I'm kind of off my my little tangent here. That's why it's important for us in the book. Um, An emphasis by Luke on the resurrection and exaltation doesn't negate his emphasis on the death of Christ, right? Just because he's focusing on those two things doesn't negate any emphasis on the death of Christ. Another theological implication we see in Acts is that when the Spirit is poured out on believers in Acts, we know that the Spirit applies the work of redemption to believers. The Spirit applies the work of redemption to believers. So the, the Spirit, you could say, it applies, He applies the blood of Christ. And without the Spirit's application of redemption, there's no salvation. So the death of Christ is central in the Spirit's regenerating act of salvation. Another way we see the death of Christ in Acts, although it's not a direct parallel, is the way Luke presents the followers of Christ as being type or, or like suffering servants like their, like their Lord. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is presented as the innocent, righteous sufferer. And that theme, it continues, in Acts, as the apostles are presented in that same light, as as righteous sufferers in several narrative accounts. Finally, probably most explicitly in the book of Acts, this is where the the case, I think, is just shut. The door is shut. This is the mic drop. The apostles consistently preach the forgiveness of sins and salvation in Acts, and both of these, forgiveness of sins or, or atonement... Salvation, they're explicitly tied to Jesus' death, always by the apostles. Luke also emphasizes several times in the narrative that Jesus' death was according to the plan and will of God. Again, showing how Jesus' death is central in in Luke's understanding of his writing in Acts, so our theology of Acts. When the apostles break bread at several points, they participate in, in the Lord's Supper, Right, they're reenacting the New Covenant meal which is entirely focused on what? The body and blood of Jesus being broken and shed for us, literally focusing on the Lord's death. And the point of all this is prove that the cross is not absent from the book of Acts as some claim. Rather Christ's atoning work, Christ's sacrificial death, Christ's atoning work on the cross is, the, is on the foreground, in the foreground, in the, in the mind of Luke and therefore must be included in our theology of Acts. And so following the the Lucan logic that Shriner's laying out for us, we can see in Acts how the Father's plan centralizes on the Son of God, Jesus, and His work of salvation. By emphasizing the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, who, who provides eternal life for all those who put their faith in Him, and who's now ascended on his throne, who rules over all. All of this, right, right, we just said, is based on his obedience unto death, by which he offers cleansing, forgiveness of sin. This is Christ's work. This is his work of salvation that he, wrought, that he wrought in now his people who put their faith in him. And this is what we see in Acts over and over again as we read the narrative as a whole. So in closing, I'm just going to read uh, what Schreiner wrote because it's very good. He said, Though Jesus is absent bodily in Acts, he is ever-present. His resurrection life abounds on earth. Through his power, the apostles heal, raise the dead, perform miracles, are released from prison. They proclaim Jesus' new life and offer it to all who are willing to give up their campaigns of death. So in Acts, we see the Son of God living, ruling, and enacting God's plan of salvation and history. That's all I got for us this week. Next week, we're going to then focus on the role, the theme of God, the Spirit, in the book of Acts, which, as I'm sure you're all aware, if you've read Acts, it plays a massive role in the story. Any maybe one or two less comments, questions. <coughs> All right, well, we are dismissed. Thank you.